There's the lesson here. Stay away from bikes. everyone and welcome back to A608 After Hours. My name is Monica Higgins. And I'm Uche Amechi. And today we are happy to have with us Aviad Maitar, uh, who will introduce in just a minute. So uh, Uche, what have you been thinking about this week? <laughs> this week we came back to strategy and thinking about how an organization thinks about scaling its operations. And one of the big pieces was an organization really stepping back and being able to audit or analyze its capabilities and see whether or not it actually aligns with its current strategy and how those two, the strategy and the capabilities, their alignment or misalignment may actually allow them to scale. And then of course, there's a the question like, what are you thinking about scaling and why? Um, a big piece of the discussion is like, is there, must all organizations scale or what is it that you're trying to scale? Is it impact? and why and what do you consider? So it was a great conversation um, with people who had very different perspectives and very two very interesting cases in the educational sector. Monica, what are you thinking about? Um, yeah, this week was all about scaling for impact. And we talked about, as you said, that overlap between what you want to do, your strategy, and what you're capable of doing actually when and we used a capability audit to try and assess that and we used a strategy audit to assess one strategy and it's really the overlap kind of you think about sort of a venn diagram there's going to be some sort of overlap between what you can do and what you want to do and you certainly shouldn't go after a strategy that you can't execute on and you certainly don't want to run around trying to do things without a strategy so it's that overlap i was thinking a lot about how scaling for impact it's just a different stage of the entrepreneurial process. The beginning stage when you think of, you know, you're trying to think of something kind of nifty, shiny and new is really fun. And that's the design phase. But actually, once you have something you want to scale, um, that's also a challenge. It's just a different challenge. It's a leadership and management challenge, and it can be extremely complex. So um, I enjoyed our conversations in class today, and I'm looking forward to talking with Aviad. So uh, just by way of background, so Aviad Maitar is a businessman, a social entrepreneur, and a philanthropist. He is co-founder and active chairman of a social enterprise called Music for Dialogue. The um, initiative uses music as a tool for bridging across sectors of society, um, and it's been implemented uh, through numerous programs in the academy and high schools and society at large in Israel in particular. In 2020, Avia, together with Synergistics and Global Philanthropy Circle, co-founded the Global Dialogue Initiative. This is a collaborative society that connects philanthropists and social enterprises that seek to promote dialogue and that aims to implement global projects that use dialogue as a main theme. He served as the chairman of Quadrant European Be Beverages Limited, QEBL, the Pepsi bottler for Romania and Bulgaria for 25 years. He set up QEBL's operation in Romania in 1991 and managed the company's operation until its sale to PepsiCo bottler in 2006. Aviad has also published a book, 
an unimaginable journey, how Pepsi beat the odds in Romania. Sounds exciting. Aviad is also a 2016 fellow of the Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard University. And he took uh, the class A608 when he was an ALI fellow. He received his law degree from Tel Aviv University of Law and his MBA from Boston University Graduate School of Management. So welcome Aviad and please add on to that introduction. Well, thank you very much, Monica. And really, it's a huge pleasure to be with you and Uche uh, today, almost five years after I took part in the very same class at uh, Hagsey. And I would tell you a secret, this was one of my favorite classes in the entire time with the Advanced Leadership Initiative. And uh, it, it's really wonderful to be back. I, I view myself as a business entrepreneur turned social entrepreneur. Uh, after a career of uh, over 25 years in uh, international business entrepreneurship, I decided to move to a new chapter. And the ALI program was a wonderful way to get that transition started. Now, as you may know, music has always been a big part of my life. And I felt that uh, the new chapter needed to include music as, as an important element of that. And that's how I came up originally with the idea of uh, creating a model to use music as a vehicle for bridging cross social divides. And after this wonderful year I had uh, with ALI, I went back home to Israel and, uh, and co-founded, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Music for Dialogue with two partners, Dr. Ori Leshman, who is uh, managing this venture the entire time and, uh, and Mr. Amnon Erzik. And, um, We've had a most wonderful journey in this five years uh, of not just developing this venture, and I, I hope to be able to demonstrate through a couple of projects that we, we've been doing uh, the kind of work that we do, but also in learning the scene of uh, many other organizations in the field of uh, trying to bridge across sectors of society. And I think one of the things that we're seeking constantly is to collaborate with other organizations so we don't have to reinvent the wheel and uh, every time we, we have an idea. And I think that uh, gives us uh, some leverage when we try to, to implement our programs. Uh, you also mentioned the important collaboration we have with the Global Philanthropy Circle, which is another vehicle for leverage and also expand internationally, which I hope we'll touch on a little later. So this is me in a nutshell and uh, I'm excited to be with you and try to answer questions you have. Fabulous, thank you. That's great. Terrific intro to your work. Um, and I was going to have you dig into your work even further, uh, connecting through music and uh, through dialogue in particular. I, I really appreciate this angle. Um, and we actually haven't talked a lot about using the arts and collecting, connecting across various lines of difference. Um, so I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about the work itself and what you've learned about scaling your own work as an entrepreneurial leader thus far, perhaps considering as well how you've exercised leadership and scale during this incredibly difficult time of crisis with a global pandemic. A couple of questions in there, Aviad, you can pick and choose. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, this is really a, a 
huge question, I think, for our times here. Um, and I'd like to talk about entrepreneurship and scaling in the context of a special program we developed this past year at the beginning of the pandemic. But I'd like to proceed by saying that I think this past year and a half, there have been two types of responses by organizations to the pandemic or the, the crisis. One was uh, somewhat uh, of a paralysis meaning uh, there's not much we can do and let's wait until this crisis is over. And the other was opportunistic, and that is, let's see what we can do differently to make the most out of a difficult situation. And I believe in, in Music for Dialogue, we took the latter approach and in doing so, gave ourselves a huge lift and opened doors that were not open to us before. And um, I'd like to share with you some elements of, an, uh, of a new program that we started from scratch just at the beginning of the pandemic called uh, Program for Youth at Risk. Um, so there was a clear need. There was a, a whole lot of, of youth being locked at home with no contact with their peers and their guides and, and, and at times even put, being put at risk with people that were you know, endangering their survival. There was an opportunity because we were approached by the Minister of Education with a cry for help. And there was a challenge because prior to that, all of our programs have been in person. And here we needed to do something that would be available without being able to convene you know, those youth at risk. So we had to adapt our, our programs to being essentially online. So over two months from March to May of 2020, we adopted the program and managed to implement that uh, in 30 places around Israel, tackling some of the most challenging communities in, in our country, uh, including, uh, especially in the periphery, covering areas where it's mostly minorities and, and poor areas and so on. So how do you manage to do that when you are very small, operation that is really based on a handful of people that, that usually carry out your programs. So we, we developed a training program for the guides of, of the youth at risk in various places. We took them through a, a process where they experienced what we're doing in our programs and uh, gave them the tools to do what we, we normally do. And with a little bit of supervision to ensure quality, we're able to start multiple programs simultaneously. Now, um, this has been uh, fairly successful. And at the end of the school year last year, the Ministry of Education asked us to create a training program for principals and teachers in many schools uh, that they would fund. And this way, we trained over 120 teachers from around the country. And what, what the result of that was, that all of these 120 teachers took it back to their schools and implemented this program. And whereas before we were trying to tackle one school at a time and it was really a, a, huge, uh, a huge challenge to, to overcome in each and every case. This academic year, we are scaling the program further in collaboration with the Ministry of Education. Uh, and we are also accompanying the program with research uh, that would measure the effectiveness. So I think 
this is how an entrepreneurial approach to a challenge uh, allowed us to scale significantly where we couldn't before. And the pandemic actually gave us an opportunity that allowed us to, uh, to go a lot further. And, and I also thought about something that brought me back to your class from uh, five years ago. You know, I was at your class in 2016 during the time of the elections in the US. And we had oh, a class, yes. we had a class the day after the elections. We did. And, and it, it, it was like a graveyard the next day. Everybody, most everybody, very upset and so on. And what I really, what really touched me and I think made the difference is that instead of starting a conversation about how everybody is miserable, you wrote a sentence on the, uh, on the board of what you intend to do the next day to make a difference uh, in the future and, and asked every one of us to go to the board and write something that they want to do the next day that will be different, that will make it an impact. And I think that was very powerful, st stayed with me. And it's very much in the spirit of entrepreneurship, you know, looking at a challenge and saying, you know, what do I do different and how do I improve a situation rather than commiserate on a, on a problem that you have? So I hope this answers the, the question great. of scaling. Oh, thank you. And thank you to, for tying it back to your days in A608. I appreciate that very much. And I like the way you tied it back to thinking about how you deal with a crisis situation or how some people don't deal with it. Um, can you just give us a little bit more detail on what the program is, just to give folks, you know, an understanding of what it is that you were you were scaling? Sure. First of all, it's important to say that the key word in music for dialogue is not music, but rather dialogue. So music is purely a vehicle. We, we don't teach music or play music, or sing or dance or anything like that, although this could be an, un, an interesting approach. We actually are using the music of the participants, and each one of us has some music that they like, that prefer, that speaks for them, and, and so on. Um, in order to start a process of a meaningful introduction to one another in, in a setting that is usually around 25 people in, in, a, in each one of the programs. And this is the first part of, of each of the programs, a, a meaningful exchange through individual music that really fairly quickly results in people exposing themselves, sharing intimate things about their lives that they wouldn't otherwise do if you just asked them to introduce themselves officially and so on. And what it also allows is for other people to really empathize and be able to see the other because every one of our settings has a component of otherness. So it could be Jewish and Arab uh, student in high school, it could be, uh, secular, religious, and even ultra-Orthodox uh, students at the university setting. Uh, even when you talk about youth at risk, even though it's kind of the same group of people, there are some issues there. And, and usually they're a little careful about exposing themselves. Through this methodology that we developed, people fairly quickly share uh, deeper aspects of their lives and allow others to see through that and 
the empathy also is kind of a causes additional bond that happens fairly quickly. And after five years of numerous programs, I can say with confidence that it happens every time. Mm. But that, we don't stop there. This is just a first phase which takes up, you know, certain part of the program. But then we usually break the group into mixed smaller groups. And in those smaller groups, they need to create some social mini ventures of their own. So they have to come up with something from their content, you know, their worlds, uh, whether it's an organization that they volunteer in or some work that they do or something they have an idea or whatever. And over the, this period, also there are dozens and dozens of, of these type of ventures that, uh, that uh, sprung up and um, uh, some even have a life of their own to the point where we're now uh, in a process of putting together a, an accelerator for social ventures at Tel Aviv University, together with the school of uh, or the business school that will house at any given point in time, some 10 ventures uh, that would get, you know, some tools to develop it further. But going back to the program, so you have the first element of introduction, the second element of doing things together. And the purpose is that at the end, people are gonna look at, at those who are different from them in a very different way that at the outset of the program. And I'd like to think, and also we are accompanying this with research that uh, there's something meaningful that happens in the process. Absolutely. Um, there's nothing like getting people to actually work on something together. Um, and there is, there's social psychological research from decades ago that talks about this. And you're doing it in practice. And not only that, you're incubating social entrepreneurs in the process, Ariad. <laughs> so um, it's terrific. I would love to hear a little bit more um, about how your own identity and your background, um, any way you would like to define that, has impacted how you enter this work each day. Yeah, so I, I touch briefly on my business career. And I think that um, a key element of this entire period was uh, having to come up with solutions to challenges. Um, this 25 year period started <clears throat> in Romania a year after the revolution. You mentioned the book that I wrote about this because it was a, a really a fascinating journey, but I walked into an environment that all the things we take for granted in the Western world didn't exist after some 50 years of communism and everything we needed to do, we had to either invent or convince somebody else to, to do. So there were numerous challenges, especially in the early years. And um, there were many points that I think most people would just give up and say, this is just too much. I'd like to have a normal job back home in the US or in Israel. And I just felt that there was a unique opportunity to do something that I would never have a second chance to do and therefore stuck with it. And um, of course, with many other people around me, managed to, uh, to overcome challenges and, and, and make this venture a success. 
And, and I think that um, when you go through this kind of process more than once, but you know, and you think that you have the tools and, and the capabilities to, um, to tackle challenges, um, I think, first of all, it gives you the confidence to continue to do it in other settings and, and not give up easily when you, when you uh, and I can tell you also in the social realm, um, there are plenty of challenges and um, we still are tackling some of them, but uh, we are there, we will continue. And um, so I think that that's a, an important element that I brought from my background to to this, you know, to this chapter of my life. Yeah, it sounds like kind of like a career imprint, which we're going to talk about in class pretty soon. But you know, what you bring from your previous career experience is obviously, you know, your musical background as well as part of your identity too. So we appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, music, just just uh, on that point. Um, Music taught me a lot, and I think that's also important. Uh, and I'll just say briefly that uh, music over the course of my life, I started playing when I was nine years old, and I've played continuously, allowed me to connect with other people in different settings, different culture backgrounds, and different things, including during ALI, better than anything else. And this taught me a lesson about the, the power of music to, to connect people and uh, bring down barriers. So that was clearly a, a, an important element in, in coming up with this idea. Hmm. It's quite powerful. Thank you for sharing, Aviad. And Monica, thanks for bringing career imprints because that's just like, was just flashing in my head. Um, and for folks who are listening, who are currently taking A608, we'll get to that next week. But um, yeah, thinking about that question of identity and how the work that you've done in the past and the successes and the strategies and the challenges like all impact how you think about your next venture or what you decide to do, not even how you decide to do it. So I love the way you talked about Ariad. And if you remember at the beginning when we were talking about, you know, what we discussed in class this week, Monica and I both talked about this concept of strategy and capability and how do those balance and how do those like the auditing or the assessment of both allow an organization to think about how or whether it scales. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you think about that, because I noticed that you spoke about that when you were actually telling, responding to Monica's question about music for dialogue and how you got it started with limited capacity. But I'd love to just hear you say, maybe just talk about how you think about it in general, like the idea of auditing or even just acknowledging your capacity and what you think about when you think about your capacity, whether it's internal to the people that you have there, whether it's like their connections and connections to the government and so on and so forth, and how you use that to either hone or connect to your strategy whether it's at a stable state or as you're thinking about growing and you've grown a lot. So if you can just talk a little bit about how you think about that, because I'm sure our students and other listeners would love to hear your thinking. Yeah, so our strategy has been fairly ambitious. You know, we, we, we wanted to, to use our, our, our 
what we believe is a unique methodology to uh, create to as much impact as we can in in uh, in our society and also in other places. And we knew that our capabilities were limited. And even as we grow, uh, just with our own uh, our own people and tools and so on, our impact would be limited. So that forced us to think of ways to leverage and use the power of collaboration and mm. and and so on. And I thought of touching on that thing uh, with uh, an example from what we do, what we've done recently uh, in our collaboration with uh, the Global Philanthropy Circle. Uh, uh, we proposed to them what what we noticed in this period during this period is that our approach was unique and it used music, but there are many other organizations, individuals that were using other approaches to promote dialogue. Uh, could be different arts, could be different approaches, and so on. So we proposed to them to create a society within that organization called the Global Dialogue Initiative. And this uh, really developed days before the pandemic started. And uh, so the whole development happened in the last year and a half. It's an association between philanthropists and, and social uh, leaders, an organization that use dialogue in their work and are interested in promoting that and making finding a way to implement projects uh, in a on a large scale mm. so uh, one of the things that happened and this is just in the court in the one of the other partners is an organization called the power um, the partnership for youth empowerment and they've been around for 20 years at least and they operate in many other countries so what we've done is we together uh, worked on the program that would leverage off of the two organizations' capabilities and, and, and experience and so on. And just this past summer, we brought together youth organizations from six countries, two African countries, one from Northwestern US, one from England, one from the Caribbean islands, and one from Israel. And these pro uh, groups met virtually and learn about one another using the music for dialogue methodology. And despite cultural differences and technical challenges and so on, uh, I, I think there's been a fairly meaningful process of learning about the other. And then, true to what we do in our programs as well, um, each one of the local groups developed a social venture that they shared with, uh, with other groups to receive feedback on and then made a commitment to implement it and carry it through in the coming uh, period. So uh, out of this, and this was a fairly short program, out of this collaboration, we developed a kind of a geographically spread multi-nation project that now uh, evolved into six meaningful 
social projects in six different countries. And this was so excited to the founder of the partners of youth for youth empowerment that uh, she said that now we need to look at creating 50 or 60 such programs and making you know huge impact together and again there's no way we could have done any of that by ourselves uh definitely not in so many different geographic locations and we used the infrastructure of these other organizations and the methodology that we uh, developed uh, and created a joint program that was interesting, exciting, and uh, is of scale. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, I hope this answers some of what you said, you know, looking about oh, it does. How, to, yeah. how to execute the strategy given a certain set of capabilities, which in many cases in the social realm are never enough. I, Monica and I are like back channeling as we often do. And like this, your response is, I love it because you touch on like two of the concepts that we wrestle with in class. Like one of them is like, when you're thinking about scaling, there's this issue of control. Like we usually frame like is it the you want to scale your organization or is it a specific program or is it this principle this impact and you went for the impact it didn't have to be your organization and i'm and then this whole like even as you were collaborating working within the constraints that you had you were also learning so executing to learn was very interesting and i'm curious as to because there are other organizations when it's time to scale they really want to control it themselves so what allowed you or you and your partners to feel either confident or to have the level of trust to say, we don't have to do it ourselves. We don't have to like focus our energies on growing our organization. We will collaborate. We will trust whoever, whomever we're working with to take this and run with it. Can you talk a little bit about that decision point? Yeah, well, I think first of all, of course, there's a need to be selective in the partners you take. I mean, this is like with everything in life, you know, uh, yes. you take the wrong partner and, and it can lead you on a very wrong path. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is one thing you have to be very careful about. You, you should know your, your partner uh, in setting up a joint program and so on, and you have to trust them to, but also I think that at the end of the day, we never totally let somebody else, uh, run our programs. It's something that we need to keep some involvement. It could be an element of in the planning, it could be in the training, it could be in the execution, but there have to be some elements that allow us to know that what is being done and our name is, is there as part of this thing is in line with our vision, with, uh, you know, with our core values and so on. And um, sometimes it doesn't. And at that point, I think you have to say, that's not a good way to go. And, you know, scaling is not, uh, I mean, has to be in the context of doing it right. So uh, it cannot be at the expense of your values and your vision and so on. So I think in this particular case that I described, we were lucky to find an excellent partner with significant capabilities that looked at that as a true partnership. They don't control, we don't control, 
we work together, we develop something, it's co, you know, there's co-ownership of this. If we're successful, we're both successful. And I think that's the key. I think, I think if you find the right partner, um, you don't need to get all the glory. I mean, it's enough that you're part of, a, of something that is, that is right and that is moving your organization in the right direction. And uh, I, I found, again, in, in the last five years in my journey to look for possible uh, partnerships and so on, really a, a long list of people that I would be very happy to partner with, even if I'd have to give up some of the ultimate success, because it's more important to me and to our organization to uh, be able to do more than just to own everything that we, that we do. I love that. And I'm just taking away so much from what you said. Um, I smiled at one point because probably Monica and I are thinking about Terrence Wan. Like, I don't need the credit. It's about the impact. It's about making sure that we get the impact that we're reaching for. And as I'm listening to you, this whole capacity audit and a big piece of it is how you think, again, how you think about your capacity impacts what strategy you take, whether or not you think about just scaling the principle where you feel like you need the absolute control and the trust that you had and the luck that you had with the partners that you found. And I feel like that is a big part of that capacity. And I think some people might not necessarily think about it. It has to be within the organization when they're thinking about capacity, but these networks that you built and you intentionally built it, that's very powerful. So just the way that you're talking about it and the way that you're really making it very practical, very helpful for me. And I think it was very helpful for our students also. And of course, just the idea of music for dialogue, like finding a passion and that helps people kind of unleash or like open up and collaborate and communicate. I love that idea. And I'm actually picking up some of that in what you're saying with the work that you're doing strategically, you're finding collaborators to share a certain passion. Maybe it's not just music, but it's something else and using that to open up those doors. So thank you so much. There's like, this has been a great conversation. Monica, what are you thinking? Oh my goodness. Um, Aviad, thank you so much. This is perfect timing for us. You just demonstrated so many different um, elements of scaling and how intentional you need to be when you think about scaling, including with partnerships. Um, just for those of you who may be tuning in for the first time or perhaps uh, don't recognize the the attribution here to Taryn Swan, uh, who's um, somebody who's we have a, a core case in the class, and she is starting uh, the Latin American business uh, for Nickelodeon uh, Latin America. It was a long time ago, but one of the things that she says at the end, and I too thought, Aviad, this is just um, so clear, is you know you don't have to get all the credit because you're gonna get the credit anyway, if the actual initiative is successful. And you basically said the same thing. You know, you don't, I think you said, you don't need to get all the glory. And, you know, you just wanna have a successful initiative. And I'm using the word initiative because it could be a program, it could be an organization, it could be a school, you know, depends on what business you're in. Um, so it's just like this, 
way of being humble and pulling your ego actually out of it is so critical to entrepreneurship. And yet entrepreneurs um, do generally have a difficult time relinquishing control, like to have control. So I think you're a perfect example of how, you know, it's, it's critical to think about areas in which perhaps somebody else should have control, but you can still, um, you know, have high standards in terms of quality if you select your partners carefully. I too also loved the piece about music. And I think sometimes when we start thinking about scaling our work, we forget where our roots are and what we really care about. And so um, whether it's music or some other um, passion that folks have, just remembering what that passion is along the way. It doesn't have to be what you do for your career, but don't forget it. And I love seeing it put into action with your work. So thank you. Um, and I hope you don't mind us asking you a couple of um, fun, just fun questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, we like to talk about dessert, Aviad. So do you have, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I have a favorite, which I only actually put into action once in, in a long while. It's called Tartatem. Uh, for those who don't know it, it's uh, sort of an upside down apple tart and it's a big thing in France. Yes, it is. And uh, it's wonderful, but it's like uh, the most calorie rich dessert you're ever going to come across. But uh, mm. yeah, that's my favorite. Perfect timing. It's Paul here, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people have to look that one up. All right. It's been a heck of a last year, year and a half, two years. We were talking before we started recording about just how much of a change the last two years have been. So maybe given the last two years, maybe given everything, given everything else, what is one thing that you're grateful for right now? Well, the first uh, and most important thing to be grateful for, I think, is uh, I feel reasonably safe during these uncertain times in my surroundings, environment, in Israel in general, in general, we're almost back to like uh, what we had before, not quite. So th this is this is really something that I think uh, many of us should be thankful for. And, and I definitely uh, feel lucky. But I also like to mention that um, to have an opportunity to be involved in things that I like and creating uh, some positive social change and involving music, which is my passion, it's really, uh, really, I, I consider myself very lucky and very thankful for that. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so Avia, uh, you were involved in the Advanced Leadership Initiative, ALI. Um, and so you were involved with Harvard Graduate School of Education, but other Harvard schools as well. So if you think about it, just generally speaking, you know, coming back and being a student and then leaving, is there anything you wish someone had told you about life after that period of time when you were a student at Harvard? Well, first of all, I guess I would have liked to stay longer at Harvard. <laughs> it was an amazing period. And um, uh, I thought about it for a while, but unfortunately, given the family situation wasn't an option, um, I would have loved to, to take additional courses, uh, especially in, in the School of Education and so on, but do more research around my concept and social impact and so on. But I think um, one hard lesson that I learned during this past year, past five years, 
is that it, it's a lot easier to create and implement a project and a lot harder to secure funding to support it. And this is something that we're still struggling to resolve. Uh, we are up and running. We are, uh, you know, we, we're active in developing things and so on. But uh, we, every once in a while, need to think about uh, additional funding to to support our growth and our um, ambitious plans for the future. So, and, and that's something I think that uh, when you think about starting a venture. Um, creating something and so on it's something that you have to keep in mind and to be prepared for mm -hmm. so um maybe that's one thing i i i don't know if i would have done things differently necessarily but it's something to think about carefully when you when you plan your way after a lie that's wonderful. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Great so it was much. Great to reconnect with you. Thank you both. It was a real pleasure. And I hope to have an opportunity to come to the class in person at some point. <laughs> we would love that. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear others where Monica and I interview leaders from the social sector, visit us at bit.ly forward slash a608 after hours. That's bit.ly forward slash a608 after hours. If you'd like to join the conversation or share your thoughts with us, you can send us a message or voicemail or suggestions for new podcast participants at a608hgsc at gmail.com. That's a608hgsc at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.